welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Shokananda and Reverend Prem, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. In this episode, we could take a little deeper dive into the big E. In one of our recent episodes, we were talking about enlightenment and sort of, you know, trying to demystify it a bit based on some of the myths and urban legends. If we have time, you know, look at how the yoga of wisdom, yana yoga, and non-duality, enlightenment are all related to bhakti yoga, or if they're not. Wow. Okay. Let's see what we get to today. Yeah. Okay. okay. Why don't you get us started? Yeah. Okay. I had sent you Chris Wallace's view of how he described enlightenment from the tradition, you know, a non-dual tradition, Shaiva Tantra. And I thought it was beautifully done. And I thought maybe we could try to like deconstruct it a little bit, see okay. what comes. Okay. I remember reading that. It was, it was very powerful, very beautiful. Yeah. And what I did was I basically took what he said, and he tends to be, no disrespect, because he's really a brilliant scholar practitioner uh, of that tradition, and, but he tends to be wordy. So I tried to like synthesize a little bit. So here's what we got. Okay. All that exists throughout all time and beyond is one infinite divine consciousness, free and blissful. Wow. All that exists. Throughout all time and beyond. That's interesting. Beyond. So in other words, for eternity, uh, you can just say for eternity, because that's where it might be a little bit extra words. Beyond All time and beyond. Okay. Yeah, because... If you think about, I mean, in, in most of the non-dual traditions, they don't even consider time. There's sort of no time-space continuum. Yeah. You know, like in Western thought, like in, in Tibetan Buddhist philosophy and non-dual Shaiva, Tantra, Advaita Vedanta, there really is no time, no beginning, no end. It's just all energy that just changes form. Yeah, I think what uh, Mr. Wallace is doing, he's, he's accepting some of our understanding that we live in a in duality and we live in time so he's accepting that all time and then he's accepting the the non-dual understanding and beyond which non-dualists don't even believe in time yeah right really good point yeah so maybe it's a kind of a compromise all time because it's hard for us we can't even imagine what no time means you know what does eternity mean we have what does it mean to have no beginning and no end you know right yeah yeah Right. There was a quote on the board at Shivananda Hall last night mm. from someone you've been reading, Jay Krishnamurti. Okay, yeah. We're not afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of losing the known, mm. like what we know, what we're used to. That's okay. the real fear around. Okay, yeah, there's a distinction between fear of the unknown and fear of losing the known. He's yeah. making that distinction. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. Yeah. And when we start thinking about no beginning, no end, no time, uh, that's fear of, of the known. Losing the known, you know, how can I, how can that, what is that like? It, tends, it, could be, it sounds like it could be very boring, right? Uh, <laughs> or, 
Eternity. No, but he says, no, no, but he says that, that it's free and blissful. So free and blissful. Okay. Yeah. Eternally free and blissful. Okay. So there's one infinite divine consciousness, right? And this consciousness projects within the field of its awareness, a vast multiplicity of apparently differentiated subjects and objects. Mm. The same consciousness expresses as a contracted center or mm. point of self-awareness, mm. right? So this consciousness that's beyond time, space, is free and blissful, that's oneness, one cosmic consciousness, I guess we could say, when it projects within its field of, of its awareness, it projects into all these subject objects which are contracted centers or points of self-awareness. Contracted, I guess, because it, those points of self-awareness, meaning finite beings. Yeah, they become finite, yeah. Yeah, become finite and thus like... At least they think, yeah. I, I, I like he's the word apparent, yeah, apparent. Yeah, apparently. I think that was the operative word, yeah. that this vast multiplicity of apparently differentiated subjects and objects. Yeah. Because in the non-dual view, everything is just consciousness. It's all oneness, right? Expressing as what seems to be apparently differentiated subjects and objects. And then we are the ones, like in the human form, think of ourselves as different. Like, I'm different from you. You're different from me. So that's a contraction of this very expanded consciousness, which is that's the enlightened, I don't even want to say enlightened worldview because it's not even a view. There's no world. It's just <laughs> There's no world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you use the word expanded expansion, you know, I think that relates to Mr. Wallace's freedom. As long as we're this small being, we can't really be free. The freedom comes understanding that basically there's only one person. There is no two people. You know? Yeah. There's only one one being. It's amazing to think that that this one being has contracted to become you and me and all our listeners. We're never, we're never other than that one being. In the Tibetan Buddhist, there actually isn't even a being. It's just consciousness. Just, yeah. Emptiness, they call it. Yeah. yeah. Emptiness, which is really fullness. Because really fullness, every, yeah. Yeah. It's like our own Purnami Dham prayer is what exactly, I think. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That fullness came out of this fullness, but it's still, the fullness remains ever full. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. This, it projected itself into this subject object, but it never lost any of, its, of itself. And yeah. that's, that's the, to me, that's the highest mystery of all, that the one consciousness became all these individual consciousness and seems to have forgotten itself, but it never can forget itself. That's, that's the mystery that... Mm. I can't, my, my, my mind can't break that. Yeah. It can never forget itself. And yet somehow this contracted consciousness doesn't remember who it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so well said. That's exactly. But you know, I like also, you know how Gurudev would always tell the story that you know, people would endlessly ask him, here you've got this enlightened Swami came from the East, all this wisdom. What's the burning question? that pretty much everyone asked him, why are we here? What, why, when, where, who, how, you know? Yeah. And he would say, 
God got bored, <laughs> right? And wanted some entertainment. So then he created human beings because they provide a lot of entertainment. <laughs> Okay, so Chris Wallace and his, you know, continuing his explanation, he addresses that. It's, he says, this creation, a divine play, mm. is the result of the natural impulse within consciousness to express the totality of its self-knowledge in action, an impulse arising from love. Mm. Wow, so this creation is a divine play, it's the result of the natural impulse within consciousness to express the totality. You know, it's, it's expressing itself, an impulse that arises from love. I think of like in nature when a flower, you know, it's like the seed and then it bloom. Why does it bloom? It's like expressing. It's, mm. It has to express its nature in this beauty. And I don't know, it's amazing to think of everything in the creation, human beings, a natural world, everything as this divine play this yeah. leela yeah to me it does indicate some some level of duality that there's there's this absolute consciousness it's just watching it doesn't do anything doesn't get involved doesn't have any karma that consciousness manifesting as this play but that's not dualistic right if you think of it in terms of fruit has seeds and then you take those seeds and plant those and then it, it's just the expression seems mm -hmm. to be different but essentially yeah. It's made of the same essence. Yeah, I think you're right. But it still seems to me that there are two aspects of the one. There's the purusha or the conscious and there's the prakriti, the expression of that. But that's the samkhya view and it's a dualistic view. Patanjali Yoga Sutras is based in samkhya philosophy, you know, and that is dualistic. But in Jnana Yoga and Advaita Vedanta, the prakriti would be seen as, as not distinct from but simply, like he's saying, it's an expression as a contracted center or point of consciousness. It's the same mm -hmm. consciousness. It just looks a little smaller and we experience ourselves as distinct, but that's illusion. You know, so many of these wisdom traditions talk about this illusory nature of reality that we as human beings reify or concretize as distinct and different, individuated and all those things, when in actuality, there is no real distinction at the yeah. essence. There are, I think, non-dualists who say that there is actually no such thing as property. It's, that's, that's what you call Maya. It's an illusion. It's just, right. I don't think I subscribe to that, at, at least at not my current level of consciousness. I think that there is nature. I think it is an expression of that one being playing for some reason, the Leela of the one being, but it, it exists. It's not an illusion. It, uh, it's an, the illusion is how we're perceiving it as something distinct. You know, you and I are distinct. We're, 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 we're perceiving it as a material world when it's really consciousness, but it's, it's somehow a denser consciousness, express consciousness from that one being. I did better with that mm -hmm. than with the fact that then, no, no, you're dreaming, it's not, it's not there, you wake up, you know. I think it's there, I think it's there helping us to wake, the purpose of it, when we say play, it's playing to help itself remember, remember itself. The play is for the one to remember itself and for us to get a little motivated to, to try to recognize that uh, we forgot who we are, you know? Yeah. Uh, on some level, this is 
a, has a dream, the waking state is a dreamlike quality to it because even though there's, there's a good amount of shared, there's also the, because of our own mental projections, we all see it a little differently. Um, yeah. That's why human beings are so interesting to the divine because seeing it differently, we create so many problems and conflicts and things. Yeah, because uh, it's really interesting when you think about it. We do see this waking reality sometimes very, very differently. Same exact circumstances. Same circumstances, yeah. And just experienced complete different way and take and understanding and everything. It's, and we see it so clearly now, especially in our <laughs> That's world. what I was going to say. People see the same exact situation and they interpret it the opposite way. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. I know. Yeah. Is there such a thing as an objective experience? You know, and I, I guess somewhat that's my understanding of enlightenment. You, you just see it as it is uh, without any coloring of our samskaras, our conditioning over it. When the Buddha had his enlightenment experience, he had the name Buddha, which means awake. He woke up to suchness, to what is, to isness, the empty nature of consciousness, awareness, the world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. The interesting thing is that it seems that you still do have a personality. The fact that you can see things as they are doesn't mean that there's no personality there that's seeing. It seems like they still have some operating with some personality based on how they were brought up, where they were brought up. You have more experience in that than any of us because you lived closely with Gurudev, but you can see, it seems like he had, a, he was a personality, right? He totally. With the enlightenment experience, what happens is that part of the ego that identifies that I am this body-mind, that's what dissolves. That gets subsumed mm -hmm. in this awakening. But there's uh, the other parts of the ego, the personality, you know, all the mental faculties, et cetera, et cetera, body, are still the same. It's that one aspect that seems to dissolve that causes that identification with mind, body, the impulse to aversion, desire, and wanting attachment, those kind of things. Yeah, and it seems that if they still are living on this earth, I assume that this personality level dissolves when they leave the body. That would be yeah. my thought. Yeah. That uh, they, as long as they're in the body, they, they need to function, they need to get their mail, right. they need to interact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's continue reading um, from Chris okay. Wallace's description because he's he's going to get into a little bit of the practice part of it too okay so the next part he says when we identify with the limited and circumscribed cognitions and circumstances that make up this phase of our existence instead of identifying with the overarching pulsation of pure awareness that is our true nature, we experience what's called pure suffering. He gets wordy, but yeah, he's describing pure suffering. When we identify with the limited, right, cognitions, circumstances that make up this phase of our existence, instead of identifying with the overarching pulsation of pure awareness, that's what we call pure suffering. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I came to New York yesterday from after a half a year in Virginia. I traveled on the train. I sat in the quiet car with my mask on. Now I'm staying at a friend's house quarantining. And, and I think all those circumstances are, are me uh, and practice to get that, what is it called? The pulsating, under, underlying pulsation of pure awareness. Yeah. When he says that, I can, I can step back and recognize that's really my reality. Yeah. And, and I, am, I think I'm also at my friend's house. Uh, can I have both realities or I can only have one? <laughs> <laughs> you can have both, but do they have you? Does the friend's house, temporal reality, the Maya, the Prakriti, does it have you? It mostly has me, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's why... It's helpful for me to hear Mr. Wallace's words. And that's, I guess, the benefit of Swadhyaya, spiritual study and satsang, satsang yeah. uh, good company, because it can a little bit soften the fact that I'm in my friend's house and that's what all I know. <laughs> and, and I miss that pulsating awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Watching, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now he says, okay, but there is a way out. To rectify this problem of this pure suffering because... We identify with what we're not. Some people feel an urge to take up the path of spiritual wisdom and yogic practice. The purpose of this is to undermine our misidentification and directly reveal the divine powers of consciousness, bliss, knowing that comprise the totality of our experience as well. Oh my gosh, it's so wordy. Let's break this out. Okay. The purpose of spiritual practice, of sadhana, of being on a spiritual path, is to undermine right. our misidentification and directly reveal the divine powers of consciousness, bliss, knowing that comprise the totality of our experience as well as the wrong identification, thereby triggering a recognition that our real identity is that of the highest divinity, the whole in every part. So he's saying that the individual consciousness can do something about the situation. Yeah. I guess some schools of thought say that that also is a part of the illusion, that when, when the oneself wants to remember itself through this Swami Shokananda contraction, it'll do so. Can I, can I make it happen? Even the making of it happen comes from the impulse from the one, right? Yeah, I think you're right to raise the question because maybe what you're pointing to and what you say is, is maybe a more bhakti yoga approach, right? Just surrender to whatever is, which is different and the same. And, and we'll talk about that because I think that's also going to be pretty fascinating. There is or seems to be a relationship that some make. We know Sri Shankaracharya, who was really largely responsible for systematizing, I want to say, or putting together the whole system of Advaita Vedanta. The texts that he wrote, he was like prolific in writing about non-duality. And yet he was a complete bhakti yogi. So we'll get, yeah. into, we'll get into that. But I think yeah. here, what this is pointing to is 
Some feel this inner urge, he's saying. Some feel an inner urge to take up the path of spiritual wisdom and yogic practice. So what does it mean? It means that probably for a lot of us who want to pursue this idea of I can wake up, I can have some awakening, whether you call it enlightenment, nirvana, whatever, and I have this impulse to do something to try to recognize or realize my true nature. So wasn't it, I mean, Sri Ramana Maharshi, he used to tell everyone who would come to him, they would ask him, so how do I attain or how do I experience what you have? And he would say, ask yourself, who am I? That was the practice. So yeah. There was some practice. I've heard Nisargadatta Maharaj say that, well, in a sense, yeah, there really isn't any practice. It's like you just have to wake up. And what's going to happen? You have to wait till your vasanas and samskaras, the veils all thin and purify through burning out, purging your karma, leading a good life. I mean, all of that leading the good life and seems to contribute to the cleaning of the mind, you know, the ego and everything. Yeah. But we tend to be human doings, right? Versus human beings. So <laughs> we're going to, yeah. so, so everyone was always asking these teachers, well, what can I do? You know, what can I do? What practice? Give me something to do. So they would say, okay, well then just meditate and ask yourself, who am I? I'm going to read you a quote from Ramana. It touches on this issue of do we do anything or, or not? Yay, okay. He says, truly, there is no cause for you to be miserable and unhappy. You yourself impose limitations on your true nature, infinite being, and then weep that you are but a finite creature. Then you take up this or that sadhana to transcend the non-existent limitations. <laughs> so first we, we, we think that we're small. We limit our, our true being. And then we do this or that sadhana to transcend something that's not existent. True. Yeah, something that's an illusion anyhow. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. isn't it? Crazy. Yeah, but it seems to me that's a human condition. So yeah, and then Chris Wallace says, he says, this experiential insight is repeated and reinforced through various means. And there's this text, it's called the Recognition Sutras. So it's all about recognizing our real identity and as we begin to get that experiential insight, you know how like when you're first on the spiritual path, I don't know about you, but I remember being in the first talk I ever heard Gurudev give, you know, live and in person. It was in New York, 1974. Okay. He, he was speaking at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. I think he was speaking at the Synod House. He started talking about the problem with Western psychology. And Western philosophy is that they tell you that you're your body and your mind. Right. Whereas in Eastern psychology and philosophy, you learn that you are not your body and mind. You are the immortal self. You are the pure consciousness. You are pure awareness. And when he said that, I thought oh. to myself, wait a minute, what did he just say? <laughs> I'm, I'm not my body and I'm not my mind. Wait a minute. That was a new thought, right? I don't think I had had before because I remember after I left the talk, I was going to stay with a friend who, because I was living in New Jersey, not in the Institute yet. I was still, I think, at my parents' house. And soon I moved into the okay. Institute. But so I was staying with a friend in New York and 
And she had left early because she's like, this isn't for me. And I looked at her and I said, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm ever going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> like this. That's the case of uh, same, same, same circumstances, different reactions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I remember yeah. leaving the, the leaving the talk, and I was like in an altered state or something, and I was like walking to the apartment, and I'm literally saying to myself over and over, "I'm not the body, I'm not the mind." I'm not the body. I'm not. The, wait a minute. I'm not the body. I'm not the mind. What? Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I'm not the body. And I just kept saying there was something so comforting that rang so true, but yet it was so not my experience. And it's really what hooked me. And I'm like, I got to know more about this. <laughs> That's so, the beauty of a beginner's mind, right? Beginner's mind can really go deep. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I think when he's saying this experiential insight is repeated and reinforced through various means until it becomes the non-conceptual ground of every moment of experience. Let me say that again. Yeah. This experiential insight is repeated and reinforced through various means until it becomes the non-conceptual ground of every moment of experience then yeah. one's i mean that's the whole spiritual the whole that's... spiritual path is going from concept to experience you know how yeah. are we going to get what we're we can try to our best to understand the concepts and i think that's important yes we should never never confuse the concept with the experience yeah. exactly like um yeah. you know one of my teachers buddhist teacher says don't confuse the menu for the meal <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's so important. In Tibetan Buddhist thought, the view, having the concept, is actually very foundational. Without that, it's like they yeah. say, it's like saying, I want to go from point A to point B, but I have no idea what the train is, what I should bring, what I'm going to encounter. You got to have some preparation. So you need this view, this vision of where you're going or where you want to be going. I totally yeah. agree with that. The good conceptual foundation is crucial, I think. I yeah. mean, maybe not crucial, because I think people like Ramana himself, uh, oh. they just kind of jump. For most of us, this deep, deep practice and understanding has to come first. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you were saying, Sri Raman, I mean, those are the exceptions to the rule. These are people who right. clearly something else is going on. They've done no practice or they're just right. going about their life. And then suddenly they have this awakening experience. Yeah. Eckhart He just hit rock bottom and then woke up, it seems. Yeah. Right. But for the rest of us, it seems like... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. We need the concept. Yeah. Yeah, we need that. And then he's saying that the insight then, because that's part of the right of the concept and understanding is you get insight into. So like for me, I was getting the insight for the first time. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not this body and mind. So that was a moment of insight mm -hmm. that now mm -hmm. I had to repeat, reinforce through understanding more and beginning to practice yoga until it becomes the non-conceptual ground of every moment of experience. But of course, nobody said, yeah. in your case, lady, could take you a darn long time. <laughs> a darn long time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then there's this, this, this bigger topic that maybe is not for today, but uh, 
you know, this whole thing about spiritual bypassing. Yeah. We, we exist on this conceptual level, and then we try to make that our reality, and we're really suppressing and not dealing with parts of our psyche that it's better to, to look at this stuff clear in the eye rather than to mantra it out of existence, you know? Exactly. It's a big problem in a lot of spiritual communities is this yeah. tendency to spiritually bypass. So I took this program with Mark Epstein. You know, he's a Buddhist teacher and therapist. He's a psychiatrist. Him, yeah. And he talked a lot about that. And of course, John Wellwood wrote all about it. And it's this idea of yeah. some people on the path are just focused on waking up, but not growing up. <laughs> I like that distinction. Yeah, and that's really the distinction. It's like you need to be integrated, which is why I love Gurudev's whole tradition and path of integral mm -hmm. yoga. You're integrating all the parts of yourself so that you're growing up and waking up. And it's a psycho-spiritual journey. I think that when we try to bypass one part of it, it only comes back to bite you in the you-know-where. Yeah. You know, a lot of people yeah. say that they've seen people who for, you know, they've been on the p spiritual path for 20 years and yet they, they keep hitting against the same walls, which are really the walls of their own psyche because they haven't dealt with the various, you know, emotional body issues. They try to skip the emotional body and just yeah. jump to the other koshas. It's a whole thing we could get into, you know, whole thing. I know, yeah, yeah. Whole thing. I put myself in that category. I really, I was just into waking up. And Gurudev yeah. kept saying, no, 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 don't forget the growing up part. You got to grow <laughs> up, man. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So then he continues saying that, so once this experiential insight is repeated and reinforced until it becomes a non-conceptual ground of every moment, then one's contracted sense of self and separation from the whole is finally annihilated in the incandescent radiance of the complete expansion into perfect wholeness. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Then our perception fully encompasses the reality of the universe dancing ecstatically in the animation of its completely perfect divinity. Whoa. Whoa. Imagine your perception fully encompasses the reality of the universe dancing ecstatically in the animation of its completely perfect divinity. It's like the Lord Nataraja. That's what that represents. The dancing Shiva is yeah. the reality of the universe of pure consciousness just dancing ecstatically in its perfect, awakened, divine, blissful state. Yeah. It looks to me that it can be achieved even while living in the body. Yeah. Even Mukta, that even with all the suffering around us and within us, that blissful, free dancing can be experienced whilst living within the body. Yeah. And I think that's what Sri Shankaracharya, sometimes called Adi Shankara, Sri Shankaracharya, yeah, yeah, yeah. he wrote that beautiful Nirvana Shaktastotram. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not mine, nor intellect, nor ego, nor mm -hmm. the reflections of inner self. I'm not the five senses. I'm beyond that. It's all this neti neti, not this, right. not that. Neither can I be termed as energy, prana, nor five types of breath, vayu, nor the seven material essences, datu, nor the five coverings. I have no hatred or dislike, no affiliation or liking, nor greed, nor delusion, nor pride, haughtiness, 
no feelings of jealousy, envy. I have no duty, money, any desire, not even for liberation. I am indeed that eternal. Yeah, yeah, not even liberation, that eternal knowing and bliss, Shiva, love, and pure consciousness is who I am. Remember, Gurudev teaches those chants Chidanan, Chidanam, Chidanandaham. Knowledge, yeah. bliss, knowledge, bliss, bliss, absolute. In all conditions, I am knowledge, bliss, absolute. Yeah. I have neither virtue nor vice. I do not commit sins or good deeds, nor have happiness or sorrow, pain or pleasure. I don't need mantras, holy places, scriptures, rituals, yeah. sacrifices. Yeah. I am none of the triad of the observer or one who experiences the process of observing or experience or any object being observed or experienced. I'm that eternal, yeah. knowing, bliss, love, pure consciousness. I do not have fear of death as I do not have death. I have no separation from my true self, no doubt about my existence. I have no father, mother, birth, relative, friend. I'm the eternal, knowing, blissful Shiva, love and pure consciousness. I'm all pervasive. I am without any attributes and without any form. I have neither attachment to the world nor to liberation. I have no wishes for anything because I'm everything, everywhere, every time, always in equilibrium. That's the thing. That's the thing that gets me every time. Always. Always. And you could have been oh, That's what my heaven looks like. <laughs> the beautiful thing also is that he, he did so much. He traversed all of India and he died at, at 32. Unbelievable. So what an amazing life to have accomplished that much at such yeah. a young age. Yeah, it's incredible. This is one of the many songs, prayers, texts that he's written. He wrote commentaries on the Upanishads. I mean, he was like prolific. And right, didn't he also, he organized the sannyas yeah. order? Yeah, yeah the, four, the four orders of sannyas he, he organized, yeah. Amazing. And yet he was also seemed to be a real bhakti yogi. That's my understanding, yeah. Because I've heard people, they say, yeah, yeah, oneness, that's all great. They say like, to me, that's like being the sugar. I want to taste the sugar. Right. I want to savor the sweetness. So I want that I-thou relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Did you ever meet Swami Yogananda from France? Yeah, yes. I met him a few times. Yeah. He is fascinating to me because he was the first Westerner that Gurudev initiated into sannyas in the early 60s. Right. So he went to Sri Lanka. He was in search of, I guess, a guru teachings. And he met Gurudev there when Gurudev was serving there. And he became more and more absorbed in, in sannyas dharma. And so he asked Gurudev for sannyas. And that was the first Westerner Gurudev initiated into sannyas. Right. Yeah, he's our, he's our older brother, yeah. Yeah. So I once asked him what the relationship between Yana and Bhakti was because also Yogananda, he composes all of these. He's like um, a modern day Shankaracharya almost. Mm-hmm. He composes all these verses, very devotional. He's done all this devotional poetry and songs to Gurudev and to Lord Shiva and Goddess Saraswati. And yet he's like completely this total Advaita Vedanta, you know, non-dualist. Yeah. I was interviewing him for Integral Yoga magazine. I asked him and he said, and you're going to love this because you're a Gita 
enthusiast, right? right? Okay, according to the Bhagavad Gita, karma yoga and jnana yoga constitute the two main paths, and they are referred to as bhakti or devotion throughout the Gita. This is because karma yoga is impossible without devotion to God, and jnana yoga or knowledge of God is the culmination of that devotion. So even though Shankara spoke mainly of the highest knowledge, it was quite easy and natural for him to address devotional hymns to God that inspire seekers of liberation, thereby leading them to knowledge gradually. Now, what do you think about this? He's saying actually bhakti is part of the main paths known as karma yoga and yana yoga. I have that same experience. Really? Tell yeah. us. What makes selfless action something that awakens my pleasure centers like any other pleasure that really feels good is something have to do with with devotion and it does feel like it's connected to the understanding that there's one being here and that being is working through me now you know we call them separate paths bhakti karma and yana yoga but they all seem to have a meeting place and to me integral yoga means finding a way that they all work together more powerfully than any one of them would work separately oh my i cannot believe you just said that you just no. blew my mind because that's exactly what i have recently concluded yeah that it's you know how good it used to say often well you know if your temperament is more active maybe karma yoga if you like to be more reflective if you're really a very emotional person bhakti yoga and that you could just sort of pursue whichever yoga sort of spoke to your temperament and personality more. And the more and more I'm studying all of this, you know, Gurudev's teachings and Advaita Vedanta and Tibetan Buddhism is all showing me that integral yoga, that system is key. It's key to the integration of all of this wisdom. Oh, oh my gosh. So yeah. exciting. Yeah. yeah. Yes one path, like you used to say, you know, all paths lead to Rome. So we're all, we're all going to that point of wisdom, however you conceive of that and by whatever path, but there's something very important about how he presented integral yoga as a standalone integrated system, yeah. a wisdom technology that is incredible. I'm so That's excited what... to hear you say what you're saying. Yeah, now, let yeah. me ask you this though, that so Yogananda went on to say, because I was still like, fine, I can see the karma yoga and the bhakti yoga, no problem. Now, yana yoga, I struggle. I struggle to see the relationship there with bhakti. So he says, bhakti is a deep inquiry into the nature of God. And when the non-dual nature of Brahman is attained as one's own true self, it's called pada bhakti or supreme devotion. Confusing, right? That yeah, you realize oneness, then you become the biggest bhakti. Yeah. yeah. And also, let's not get hung up on the God thing, because there's people who don't believe in the creator being of God. What I really appreciate so much in the Eastern traditions is, you know, the multivarious names. So Brahman is, call whatever you want, is God, cosmic consciousness, Brahman, the pure consciousness, the supreme state of awareness. If you're more comfortable with this idea of personal God, okay, or if you're more comfortable with the cosmic consciousness kind of approach, 
it all applies because that's the incredible thing of sanatana dharma right yeah, eternal yeah. truth that is yeah. at the heart that's the roots and foundations of hinduism of yoga and even to a large extent to buddhism kashmiri shaivism dvaita so this idea that bhakti is the deep inquiry into the nature of the non-dual nature of brahman or cosmic consciousness, when you get to that point where you recognize that as your own true self, that is your identity, that's pada bhakti, supreme bhakti. devotion. I know. It's hard for us to comprehend that. that yeah. Then once we realize there's no one here but ourself, then we become the supreme bhakti. Yeah. And he quotes Bhagavad Gita chapter 7, verses 17 to 18. What a great insight he has. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Maybe that's good for today's. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to integralyoga.org. Om Shanti.